more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study, and here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show we have recent graduate and former longtime host, Dr. Adrian Gallo. Hello. It's very weird to hear doctor and also be on the other side of the mic, I gotta say. Well, tonight's all about you instead of you having to talk about someone else. So to start out with, uh, what did you do your research on in grad school? I did my research on soils. And for those listeners, no, it's not souls. Soils, the dirt underneath our feet. I actually often got, are you a soul scientist? No, I'm not a soul scientist. I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. Uh, <laughs> so the work that I did focused a lot on soils. Um, again, that's everything underneath our feet. And for what most people don't probably recognize that, as a old professor once told me, you know, without soils, we'd be cold, hungry, and worst of all, sober. <laughs> because soils really do support, you know, uh, the production of clean water, of course, our agriculture, and, you know, where we get our food, and also where we get our distilled uh, beverages from as well. So soil, I can assume, has a lot of different areas to study. There's a, there's a lot of stuff beneath our feet. So yes. what specifically did you study in the soil? A ongoing question in soils is their ability to be a natural climate solution. So soils, if you think of a pie chart of what soils are made of, about half of the volume of soil is actually empty space. It's air. So in summers, in our Mediterranean climates where it's really dry, in summers, a lot of that is actually air, but in winter, because it rains all the time, half of that pore space is filled with water. Um, so uh, almost the other half of soil is the mineral material, the broken down rocks, the things we can physically feel with our, with our fingers. And then a little sliver, about 5% of this pie, is what we call organic matter. Organic matter is made up of carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and it's the decomposing plant roots it is the microbes that are living there, micro and macro, their earthworms and your beetles, all the things that are living or was once living and are now decomposing in various stages in the soil. And it's that organic matter, that little tiny 5% that I focused on in my research at Oregon State. I looked at the organic matter composition in 40 different ecosystems across North America with the underlying question of where does this organic matter come from? Uh, 
either from the plant roots, from the plant shoots, is it the bacteria, is it the earthworms? And also, can we predict how long that organic matter will actually stay in the soil? Because soils have a lot of carbon, uh, about twice to three times more than the atmosphere. So if we can increase that carbon just a little bit in the soil, then it can have climatically beneficial consequences for the good. So uh, as we know, that trees taking carbon dioxide and then produce oxygen. So then this carbon that you're trying to keep in the soil, how does it stay in the soil and not like go back into the air as through the tree? <laughs> yeah. Um, I often think of this as like a teeter-totter effect where on one side you have uh, carbon coming into the system uh, and that's through photosynthesis. Uh, you know, trees use that carbon dioxide to produce little sugars. And about half of the sugars they use, they, uh, they incorporate into their biomass. Uh, one biomolecule that they create is called lignin. It's a structural component in wood. It's what gives uh, wood and plants their structural rigidity. Um, that's one of the things we'll probably focus on a little bit more because that's the thing I looked at very carefully. Lignin is thought to persist for millennia. Um, spoiler, lignin doesn't persist for millennia. It was kind of an accident of a method. But uh, <laughs> So... Again, uh, trees use that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to produce sugars. Some of those sugars go to biomass. And then uh, the about the other half of sugars go towards uh, the feeding the microbes down below in their root systems. And the trees are giving these little sugars to microbes because the microbes are using that sugar as energy so that they can break apart these little rocks and fragments so that they can release nitrogen. Plants are really after nitrogen, but they have a really hard time getting it. And microbes... They're way better at accessing the nitrogen and finding nitrogen, uh, but they need an energy source, which is why they need the plants. This is a symbiotic relationship, the microbes and the plants. Uh, but microbes, they're kind of like us. When they uh, you know, use that energy in the form of you know, sugars like glucose that the tree produces, uh, they exhale CO2, kind of like humans. And again, you have the carbon coming in as the photosynthesis or the photo. Uh, the fixed photosynthesis carbon that the plant used, but then a lot of it goes out because the microbes respire and they exhale. But soils are a net carbon sink, which means the amount of carbon coming into the system is a little bit more than the carbon leaving the system. So soils are always accumulating carbon. And until recently, there's been some soil uh, or some ecosystems where uh, instead of a, um, with the soil being a, um, a, a place of storage and a carbon gain, it's being lost. So one example is the Brazilian rainforest where uh, there is a potential tipping point where um, a lot of kind of ecologically and um, many things are interacting here, but that teeter-totter is beginning to balance in the opposite direction where soils are becoming a source of carbon instead of a sink. And we really need them to be a sink of carbon ideally a greater sink of carbon if we can change our land, land management practices. Okay, so with like climate change, where there's a lot of concern about carbon, so the fact that soils can take in this carbon is actually beneficial to help hopefully offset some of the CO2 emissions currently happening. Yeah, I should also mention um, on a very practical level, if we think about a farm, um, one way to use as an indicator for how much carbon your soils has 
is the color of the soil. The darker the soil, the closer it is to the color black, the more organic matter or the more carbon that soil has. And for um, farmers that have really dark colored soils, it can be extremely beneficial because it means that there's more nutrients in the soil. It means that that soil can hold on to water for longer periods of time, especially in, uh, in terms of dr uh, drought resistance. The amount of water that is in the soil is also more accessible to plants. So the plants that are growing in this organic matter rich soil are also more drought resistant. And because there's more nutrients in, in the soil with uh, the darker color and more carbon, you typically need a smaller application of fertilizer as well to these fields. Um, and there's been some research, but it's not super strong to also show that uh, you also need less herbicide application in these high organic matter soils because uh, you use herbicide to kind of kill the bad bacteria, but in high organic matter soils, there's a plethora more of bacteria and viruses and nematodes and this and that, that um, the soil does a good job of internally regulating uh, any parasites that could be present and uh, limit their proliferation. So there's many, many uh, beneficial knock-on effects of increasing your carbon in soil that the farmer would see. Um, but the things that I was looking at had a portion to do with what, uh, with what con trying to convince farmers to change the land management practices to increase their soil carbon to create, uh, we'll probably get into this, uh, carbon offsets. Um, but from a unmanaged ecosystem standpoint, I'm thinking of, uh, your, uh, national forests, uh, national grasslands, uh, places that aren't cultivated. Um, if we can increase the carbon storage in those ecosystems, that still has a lot of beneficial effects, whether it has to do with, you know, uh, res resistance to drought, uh, insect infestations, like the bark beetle outbreak that, you know, we've probably been hearing about. There's lots of other positive effects that have a little bit less to do with direct human management, but still have a lot of ecologically positive benefits if we can increase the carbon in soils. So on both sides of that coin, what are land management practices that help retain this carbon in the soil and what kind of in nature can plants kind of help self-regulate mm. in increasing their carbon consumption, I guess? The land man the more uh, direct land management things that we know work are, and I'm thinking specifically for uh, farming and cultivation kind of spaces, right? So uh, we'll, we'll think of more natural spaces in a moment. Uh, these are, <laughs> fortunately or sadly, depending on how you look at it, almost identical land management recommendations that were put forth by the Soil Conservation Service, uh, which is now the Natural Conservation Service, uh, the NRCS, or Natural Resource Conservation Service. But it was the Soil Conservation Service in the Dust Bowl era in the 1930s uh, when we lost a whole bunch of soil because uh, we overplowed our fields. Uh, big drought occurred, then a lot of windstorms, and we lost, I mean, inches and inches of our topsoil. Which, And with that, uh, a lot of productivity because most of the nutrients in soil are concentrated in the very surface. So if you lose due to erosion, wind erosion, river, river erosion, whatever it is, if you lose even a little bit of soil because most of the nutrients and most of the carbon is held in the upper few inches – you're losing a lot of uh, potential plant productivity, but also a lot of carbon. Um, so these land management practices that were uh, suggested way back in the 30s are things like minimal tillage. So tillage is when uh, you essentially plow your field. Um, things like cover cropping. So instead of leaving your field fallow, then you always have a crop that is uh, growing there. Um, both of those basically limit the ability for soil to be lost by wind or river erosion because when you plow your field, you break up the soil 
and it is vulnerable to being tossed around in the wind. Um, if you don't have anything growing on your field, then that also it makes the soil kind of bare and naked. So it is also susceptible to being blown away by by wind erosion. Um, and then, uh, oh, uh, another one which was uh, more in usage in the past, but you plant what are called uh, windrows. So instead of having you know 500 acres of um, of a crop or many crops, it's just a lot of flat area, and that allows wind to move very quickly, uh, unobstructed. So you plant in intermediate spacing these you know large shrubs or small trees to basically make wind breaks. So that way, if you do start to get some soil erosion for whatever reason, these uh, these windrows can help to stop that erosion from getting to the rivers and streams and creeks. So that way, that soil stays on the farm. Um, all of these things also have trade-offs. So for plowing, there is a reason that farmers do plowing. Uh, when there are weeds in, in your field, you can either apply herbicide, a lot of it, or you can plow to kill your weeds uh, because then you need to plant your cash crop. So there's a reason to do plowing. Um, for cover cropping, there's many places in the United States where the growing season is relatively short or the rain that you have is relatively small and let's say you can't irrigate. So the cover crops would either uh, eat into the available water that your cash crop would have uh, because typically your cover crops are just kind of there as a placeholder. You typically can't harvest them for any kind of money. Um, they really are there just as a placeholder to keep the soil in place. Um, and then windrows, they quite literally take up space on the field that could otherwise be used for production agriculture. So uh, the farmer would literally be losing money on the small areas that are currently in windrows that could have been planted. Um, all of these uh, land management changes, they do show really positive on-farm benefits, but they do take ugh, five to 10 years for farmers to really see the benefits. Um, and this is in some uh, qualitative work that I'm familiar with that the farmers that did start doing these, uh, some of these are called um, um, uh, re regenerative agriculture practices or uh, more broadly for those listeners in the know, a lot of these sound kind of like organic agricultural practices, minimal tilling, cover cropping, windrowing. Um, it kind of is all in the same flavor of, um, of philosophies. But the farmers that did implement these strategies after you know year two, three, five or so, when farmers had a bad year, a bad drought or extra, you know, hot temperatures, those farmers did see dramatic benefits where instead of getting, you know, 70% losses of their, you know, of their, you know, wheat farm or whatever it was, you know, they only saw 20 or 30% losses, right? So it doesn't insulate the farmer completely, but when you look at farms next to each other and farmer A did these, you know, changes in land management and in bad years, they saw really big benefits compared to the, their next door neighbor who didn't do these things and lost most of their crop. You know, we can try and convince farmers with data all we want, but when they look at their neighbor and they see that, oh, that totally worked, they're probably going to change their mind and start doing some of those things. But it does come at a financial cost, an upfront financial cost, and a time cost because it takes time for the land management to change there's going to be some kinks in the system and they're going to make some mistakes. Um, and we are predicting that we're going to have many 
more often bad years in terms of um, you know trying to predict climate and weather. So the likelihood that farmers will see these benefits uh, will increase, but trying to convince them to do it is still difficult. Mm-hmm. Definitely, but it's good to hear that there are places that are trying to move forward and be able to take the steps that they need that are necessary. However, sometimes telling people, yeah, in 10 years you'll see the benefits, it's really hard when you need things now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, one strategy that is now being implemented instead of this uh, kind of look at your neighbor and wait uh, perspective is to issue soil carbon offsets. So all of these practices I mentioned, they totally work in terms of increasing the amount of carbon in soil. They only work if you do them in perpetuity. So like uh, cover cropping and minimal plowing, they slowly increase your carbon content of your soil just, you know, like a tenth or a hundredth of a percent every year. But you do that for five or ten years and you get really meaningful changes in your soil carbon content. But you can't really see that on a year-to-year timescale. It's just the ecological noise of measuring soil carbon is just too great to tease out the soil carbon signal of your land management practice. So instead of, you know, telling farmers, oh, wait for a bad year, then you'll see the benefits, um, (laughs) there's these soil carbon offset programs where um, they call them carbon offset registries. There's a company that says, uh, we will certify that farmer Farmer Jane is doing these specific things uh, on, on their farm. And these specific things, if done for enough period of time, will sequester 100 units of carbon. And those 100 units of carbon that Farmer Jane is sequestering, we can sell that on a marketplace. Because let's say Intel, they made a promise to go carbon neutral by, I don't know. I actually, I don't know if Intel did, but I assume they did because most companies said they're going <laughs> to become carbon neutral. This is kind of the thing that happened after <laughs> in, in recent times. Um, let's pretend Intel said we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, they need to somehow offset their carbon footprint. So one way to do that is to purchase the carbon that Farmer Jane is now sequestering in, in her soil. Uh, so this large marketplace developed rather quickly. It was an idea that started by the United Nations in the late 1980s and 1990s. Um, And then they threw out this idea because they realized that regulating it was just too difficult and complicated for a variety of reasons. And it made a resurgence in the last five, 10 years of, hey, there's this thing called soil carbon, or not just soil, but carbon markets generally. Um, Think of tree plantings and and all these things. Uh, we, We can try and do this on a large scale where if we get enough land that we can pay the landowner to manage it differently then the additional carbon that is being sequestered by the changes in land management can be sold on a marketplace. And kind of inevitably, the companies that are buying these uh, these carbon offsets tend to be your larger companies that have capital. Um, that's a euphemism for oil and gas industry. <laughs> <laughs> so you can kind of see the the how we thought this could be a really big benefit, and it can be a really big benefit um, but I think we in the kind of science community, especially in the soils community, because a lot of my colleagues are actively pursuing this kind of stuff, we need to be, um, I think, wary of uh, who is actually benefiting from the purchases of these soil carbon credits. Yeah. Is there any monitoring of how much, like, say, Farm A got 10 carbon credits is, and then company a bought these 10 carbon credits 
Is there any monitoring to know if the farm was able to offset that same amount from the company or is it just kind of assumed values of like we think in x amount of years that you'll get this much carbon back yes and maybe and <laughs> no um so there's hundreds if not at least thousands of carbon uh carbon registries that will accumulate carbon credits so i'm gonna talk about the most reputable Okay, and give them the greatest benefit of the doubt. Uh, for listeners, there are many, many more carbon registries that are less reputable and highly questionable, but we won't talk about them. Uh, to give carbon credits the, uh, the, the best, strongest argument is uh, they would say we have traceability into our supply chains such that um, farmer Jane is sequestering 100 units of carbon and uh, farmer Joe next to her is also sequestering 100 units of carbon. But when we sell carbon credits, we're actually only selling 150 carbon credits. So that leaves 50 units of buffer. And that's how they typically say, like, we are underestimating uh, the benefits of the land management practices because we always build in a buffer. Uh, for the most reputable uh, carbon registries, they also go and physically re-measure the ground every 5 to 15 years, um, that is extraordinarily expensive, um, which is why only the most reputable carbon registries do that. But even then, um, the unfortunate reality is that if you do, uh, let's say, minimal tillage uh, management, you do cover cropping for 10 years, you are actively increasing your soil carbon content, there's like no doubt that it is totally going to work. But if you happen to have um, a change in economic circumstances and you decide, you know what, I'm going to change my my farm operation or you're a farmer who is in their 70s or 80s, like most farmers are, um, as a side fact, I believe uh, 70 to 80 percent of American farmland is going to change hands in the next 20 years because farmers are older. So the amount that land ownership is going to change over also means that land management will probably change over. So, you know, Farmer Jane has been doing this really awesome stuff for 10 years, but, uh, you know, uh, her, her daughter decides to take over the farm and sell it because she doesn't want to do farming. And they till over, you know, four, five, six times to do a different kind of crop. They could lose most, if not a lot, of the carbon that they sequestered. So the rate of, um, this is the soil science jargon, the rate of destabilization of soil carbon is much, much faster than the rate of soil carbon stabilization. So it's way easier to lose carbon from physical disturbance like plowing than it is to slowly increase that carbon bank account over time. Um, so that asymmetry in the rates of carbon accrual or loss is always a bit of devil in the details in these uh, carbon carbon registries where, yes, they could be sequestering carbon for five, ten years, but it really only takes one year of a radical change in land management to lose most of that carbon. And there's no real promises that we have to make sure that that farm stays under, you know, X management practice for, mm -hmm. for forever. Mm -hmm. So... Again, the goal is to get the carbon in the soil. How long can carbon stay in soil? Mm. A very long time. So uh, we we do uh, bomb carbon dating. This is some of the work of um, 
myself and my colleague, uh, Catherine Heckman, um, her specialty is soil mineralogy and bomb carbon dating. Uh, this is how uh, we know the age of carbon. Some of the carbon that a tree or plant kind of captures out of the air and gives to a microbe, that microbe will respire CO2 within hours. It's really fast. Some of the carbon can stick around in the soil for tens of thousands of years. And the age distribution is really wide. The median age of soil carbon in the upper layer, um, soils have horizons kind of like layers of a cake. Their upper layer, kind of like the icing, has the most amount of carbon, lots of sugars. But that carbon is usually the youngest. Um, I think the average is like 30 to 50 years, depending on the ecosystem. Um, but with our bomb carbon dating methods, we can't really distinguish carbon younger than um, than 30 to 50 years. So the, uh, the the hours time scale that I use, that's using a slightly different method. But So that's how we know um, some of the carbon sticks around for only hours. The oldest carbon, um, and this is pretty consistent across ecosystems, but the deeper you go in soil, the older carbon gets. So if you go 50 centimeters or a meter in soil, you can easily get to a thousand year old, 5,000, 8,000 year old carbon with uh, some of the deserts that I studied having the oldest carbon measurements of, I think like 18,000 years old. Um, Why does carbon stick around in soil for hours to tens of thousands of years old? It's a large area of active, active debate. Um, One of the professors here at Oregon State Uh, Dr. Marcus Kleber. He is the tip of the spear in some of the changes in kind of the uh, soil carbon world and organic matter world. Um, He wrote a paper titled The Contentious Nature of Soil Organic Matter, uh, published in Nature. And that is about the closest scientists will ever get to fisticuffs um, because it made waves in the soil science community. Um, Real, real big waves. <laughs> um, and, and when I say that paper made waves, I like can't under, um, uh, I can't understate how, how actually contentious many of our um, kind of academic research conferences were when people were arguing and yelling about, about their research and like, this way is right. No, this way is right. Like people are heated about, what is the right way to think about this stuff? And um, I will put my two cents in that Dr. Marcus Kleber is definitely on the right side of history because he's using much more modern scientific methods that some of the, uh, we'll say the older garb of soil scientists are unwilling to accept because their whole careers were built on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a heated argument at a conference sounded actually kind of entertaining. (laughs) It it was highly, highly entertaining. Um, Like, I think the conference title was so that the conference is a large organization, but they have little sessions. And one of the sessions was long live, uh, long live soil humus. Soil humus is dead. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) For any listeners uh, that do gardening, you've probably heard of the word humus. Um, That was kind of the in vogue thing of soil organic matter for eh, since the 19 teens or so. It was very in vogue because it's like kind of the only chemistry methods we had. And only in the last like 15, 20 years have our methods evolved and realized, oh, darn, all of our assumptions were totally wrong. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, So in the last 15, 
25 years, there's been a rapid advancement in soil science research, especially as it relates to um, organic matter in carbon science. Um, and equally, in the last 5 to 15 years, um, soil microbiology has really uh, jumped into form and is an area of active, active research and um, new discoveries being made all the time. Well, it's great to hear that so much research is going into soil. I know most people don't think of what's below their feet, but as you said at the beginning, it is the start of almost everything that we need in life. It's that's all from there. Yeah. So, so you studied soil. Does this? How did you study it? Do you just go out and like dig up some things and <laughs> just like put it in some test tubes? How does one go about studying the soil? Yeah, so I'll give you an example from um, my master's, which is I studied a forest east of Eugene. Um, we were just trying to figure out like, okay, if you harvest a large area, how much carbon sticks around in soil and where does that carbon come from? Um, and that was a lot of uh, literal legwork and shovel work uh, because digging a soil pit is very, very difficult and very tiring to dig a meter deep soil pit to take samples. Um, I can't emphasize how tiring it is. And like, I'm an ultra marathoner. I'm aerobically active. It is very hard to dig a meter deep soil pit in the forest where you have to like carry out your samples on your back because there's no roads to like where it is in the forest. Um, so because of that, it is extremely uh, fin financially taxing to actually do soil science research because the act of sampling soils is financially prohibitive. So for my PhD, there happened to be a new long-term research program through uh, the acronym is NEON, the National Ecological Observatory Network. They are a new um, kind of research uh, foundation that plans to measure anything and everything under the sun at 40 sites across the uh, across the United States. And I mean, when I say everything, we're talking like they're measuring pollinators, they're measuring bats, they're measuring leaf litter fall, they're measuring um, photosynthetic radiation, wind speed, precipitation, and they're also measuring soils. So when they were going to all of these locations to install all these sensors, they used a hydraulic press to... Um, essentially core uh, a meter to meters down into the soil. And those soil cores, they're like, um, let me think, like an inch and a half in diameter. Uh, and they were coring these to install some soil sensors, but they were going to throw out that soil. And my, uh, my, my mentor, Dr. Jeff Hatton, and some collaborators wrote a grant to say, okay, hey, 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 hey. The most expensive part of soil science is going out to all these places to dig the soil because human human costs are really high there. But you're going out to all these places anyways and digging a perfect soil pit. You know, it's a little tiny tube of soil, but it is a perfect soil pit, which is really hard to do. Instead of throwing those away, why don't you just label them and send them to us here at Oregon State? We'll take care of the rest. So that's what they did. They uh, sent me hundreds of thousands of pounds of soil from around the United States, uh, some from the permafrost zones in the northernmost tip of Alaska, uh, some from the grasslands of the Great Plains, uh, deciduous forests in the upper northeast, uh, the wetlands of Florida, um, the Rocky Mountain National Park, which when I got those cores, they were like, I don't know, the size of the length of my forearm because the Rocky Mountain National Park is aptly named because it has so many darn rocks. Those soil cores were very uh, thin and narrow. Um, I split open the cores. I described them. 
Uh, we describe soils based on color, texture, rock fragments, the amount of calcium carbonate because you drop hydrochloric acid on them and they bubble and fizz like crazy if there's some uh, inorganic carbonates in there. We describe root content, um, anything and everything that we could. Um, we kind of combined them to their unique properties and I sent them off to my collaborators across the country. So some folks did some soil incubation experiments under different moisture and temperature regimes to look at how these soils would respond to a hotter and drier climate, a hotter and wetter climate, a colder and wetter climate, and all the iterations in between. We had another collaborator that, uh, of course, did the bomb carbon dating, the mineralogy. Uh, we had myself that did the soil organic matter work and you know a couple others that are each had their own specialty that they, uh, we all did the same analyses on all of these soils. Um, the uniqueness of this project was not only that we had representative soils from across the United States, across all the different biomes for a uh, project, the National Ecological Observatory Network project, that this was, um, this was 2016, they were in year zero, and they are funded for at least a 30-year program lifetime. So scientists, and this is all open source, you can go on um, neon, I think it's neonscience.org. Um, if you're a bird ecologist, you can get all of their bird count data and you can download it through GitHub and R. And uh, this is, it's really fantastic, the kind of uh, infrastructure they built so that you as a researcher in, you know, not the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, that's one of the sites that I have, you can download all of their data from your computer um, and you can now get kind of all of our analytical soil data that will really help um, because a lot of the ecological questions we have above ground, a lot of them can be partially explained by what's happening below ground. So this project to understand and describe the soils below ground was kind of a, these are some of the fundamental things we need to know about an ecosystem before we can try and explain what's happening in the ecosystem above ground. We got to know what's happening in the soil. So having uh, this project at essentially time zero of a 30-year massive scale project uh, we think will really be beneficial for the broader scientific community. Right. So you, I can picture like a machine taking out this giant core of soil. And as you said, like there are different layers to soil. So since they were of various lengths, and again, in my head, I'm just picturing this like giant core of soil did you keep them as like the core and keep the layers retained or did were they just kind of all meshed up together? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, this is this was one of the most difficult parts of my dissertation uh, because soil science is as much of an art as it is a science. Um, imagine you're in a high school baking class, like a like a home ec baking class, and you're tasked you task your students to make a a cake that has a chocolate layer and a vanilla layer and an icing layer, right? And you give them the broader, uh, you know, sets of instructions. But if you were to look at the final results of, you know, your 30 students, each cake would probably look a little bit different, even though they made them in the same exact space and they had more or less the same instructions. Soils are kind of like that. Even in a small area, um, if you were to core soil down, the thickness of the A horizon, the A horizon is the uppermost horizon. The next horizon below it is, you guessed it, a B. And the next horizon below that is, you guessed it, a C horizon. Um, the C horizon approaches kind of like rock material. It's a little bit less soil and more rock. And then the A horizon is the kind of nice, dark, um, uh, dark colored, rich soil that we typically think of. 
um, and the thicknesses of the A, B, and C horizons vary substantially, <laughs> even across a small space. So what I did is I first, um, we got uh, 10 cores from each site. Half of them, I immediately stuck in a freezer for a future microbiologist to uh, work with them. So those are archived. They are currently at one of our collaborators' large, large freezers in the University of Michigan. Um, the other five soil cores I split open and I basically took samples as individual uh, horizons. And then once I had all of them together, then I composited them. I put them together um, so that they would have the um, the most common representation of genetic horizons. Genetic meaning like the A horizons are A horizons and we combine the A horizons only. Um, because again, we had five collaborators across the country and each one of them needed you know, 50 grams of material, 150, I needed 35 grams. So we needed enough material to actually do all of the analyses. Um, so once I composited very carefully and I can't emphasize this took uh, the soil sampling and the uh, distribution, I think, took about three years, two to three years of my Ph.D. Um, and I have some wild graphs of like, OK, this A and this A1 look similar. This A, but this A2 are actually fairly dissimilar. This seems like an outlier because of the color and texture and structure and root content. So I don't think I can include those. But this A1 and this BA actually seem similar. So I'm going to combine. The it was it was complicated to do the compositing. So this is the art part of soil science, of deciding which soils do go together, which soil horizons do go together and make sense. <laughs> That's, that reminds me of one of the methods that we actually use in sensory science very commonly, <laughs> is that you just have a giant piece of paper in front of you and you have to like taste a food and then you put them close together if they're similar and then far apart if they're not <laughs> and then you like mix them together uh-huh so, yeah kind of similar yeah interesting to see how there's comparisons between a bunch <laughs> of the different disciplines so as we're getting now through kind of through your research what were the overall conclusions obviously you have completed your phd so there is a dissertation that exists out there that uh what was reported in it yeah, so I completed in December of 2022, so I just finished, and there were a couple of surprising findings. Um, I'll mention a little bit of my chapter one, which I we didn't discuss first, but it was uh, broadly about what happens to a forest if you cut it down. The carbon that is underneath the forest, how much of it comes from roots, how much of it comes from shoots. By shoots, I mean like the waxy coatings on leaves and needles. Um, one of the methods that I use, we can identify the little biomolecules, kind of like fingerprints. So if a carbon compound in soil comes from a waxy coating on a leaf, I can actually tell you it came from a waxy coating on a leaf. If it came from a plant root or microbe, I can actually tell you whether it came from a plant root or microbe. Um, so we call these end members um, of soil organic matter. For, for a forest that is cut down, um, a lot of the original carbon that was there gets uh, kind of uh, chewed up and respired by microbes, but the carbon, to the total carbon content actually didn't change in soil because the roots that were living are now decaying very quickly and are replacing the carbon that was lost. So we had a lot of microbes chewing up the, what we call the native carbon that was there in soils. It could have been very old, you know, 200, 800 years old. Um, and then the new carbon coming in was from roots. And uh, we were able to 
um, uh, to look very carefully and, and decide that yes, uh, surprisingly, within a, a let me think, it was a two-year time span, and this is very fast in soil time. Within a two-year time span, a lot of the carbon that was lost in soil was replaced by the uh, roots that were decaying very rapidly from the trees that were now dead. Um, and we thought this actually would have uh, taken uh, decades to occur, but it ended up occurring much more rapidly than we had anticipated. So that was a, a unique a unique finding for um, temperate rainforests here in the Pacific Northwest. Now for the broader study looking at the across ecosystems, it was surprising that of all of the end members that I could describe in soil, um, you know, some places, like I mentioned, were grasslands, some were deciduous forests, temperate forests, uh, some wetlands, some agriculture areas. Um, the proportion of carbon in soil that was made up of um, lignin, remember the structural components of plants, of plant roots, of microbes and such, that proportion of carbon in soil was surprisingly static across ecosystems. So in forests, most of the biomass that's produced is produced above ground. A lot of that biomass is, you know, bark and wood. And in grasslands, most of the biomass is produced below ground, where most of it is roots. But even in grasslands and in forests, the proportion of carbon in soil that came from roots and came from bark was surprisingly the same. It wasn't exactly the same, right? There's some ecological noise in there but it was much more similar than I was anticipating. And I dubbed this in my dissertation, there's a ecosystem inertia where even if you have an excess of, um, you know, lignin coming into the system in the form of, uh, you know, tree trunks and structural pieces, because there's so much lignin, there are more microbes and bacteria and fungi that are there that can break lignin down. And there's just always going to be a residual 20% of carbon in soil that is made up of lignin. And there's always going to be a residual, you know, 30% of carbon in soil that is made up of roots, et cetera, et cetera, down each ecosystem, even though the production of these different biomolecules varies wildly across ecosystems. The microbes down below, they do what they do, and they kind of make everything in the soil look way more similar than I was expecting. It's always interesting to hear about. The world might be large, but so much more similar than you can think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of for a fun question, you had all of these soil cores from these dif different ecosystems. Did you have a favorite soil or a favorite like ecosystem? Yes, 100%. <laughs> um, okay, so listeners are probably thinking, oh, okay, how interesting can soils be? Well, um, soils can be very photogenic. There's some soils called spodosols that are... Um, their color contrasts are drastic. They have a super dark, almost black top layer. And then because of all the rainfall that occurs in these areas, um, these are typically like, think of your Puget Sound uh, coast range of Oregon. Like you need a lot of rain for these things to occur. You have a white band, like a completely paper white band of where the rainfall kind of pooled all the nutrients and stuff out of the soil. And then directly below it, you have a bright red or orange band because all of the nutrients that left the, the little white area got redeposited in the area below and became oxidized uh, and became orange. So you had this like dark, super dark black band of soil on top, a drastically white band, and then directly underneath it, this like wild orangey, uh, super dark band. And it the colors are incredible. Um, so yeah, spodosols, very, very cool soils. 
So since we're coming to the end shortly, uh, I want to get a little bit into your background. So was it young Adrian's dream to study soil? Was you Were you just so excited to like go outside and dig holes? <laughs> I was chastised by my father when I was a child because I uh, decided to dig a hole because I was bored when I was younger. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> He was he was very mad at the large hole that I, I dug in the backyard. Um, so, no, my my soil science um, days did not actually start there, but they didn't end there either. Uh, I was applying for colleges and I thought I would pursue sports science. Um, I was a big three sport athlete in high school and I thought for sure I would do like sports science, sports medicine, sports something. I was going down the alphabetical list of uh, majors when I was applying to college and I applied as, you know, sports physical therapy for all of the universities I applied to, except for one. Cal Poly had a soil science degree. Again, it's right next to sports in the alphabetical list. And in one of my high school classes, we ended up doing some soil science because uh, soils is an integration of chemistry, biology, geology, and hydrology, and, and some physics as well. And my environmental science teacher just used soils as the medium to teach us about all of the ologies. And I remember that, and I thought, that was really cool science I still really like. Uh, I'll just click soil science for, you know, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. And if I don't like it, I'll just change. Um, it's incredibly difficult to change majors at Cal Poly, but luckily, I loved it. First quarter, first year, they stuck me in a soil science uh, class, and it was everything I wanted. It was some geology, it was some botany, it was some hydrology, some chemistry and physics, and I was like, I'm all about this. So I stuck with it. Um, during my time there, I got internships with the Forest Service in Alaska and Oregon, and that's when I, I realized I need to check out these temperate rainforests. These forests are super cool, and I want to study them more. So, And I was still very curious about uh, the world around me and soils in particular because I wanted to, um, at that time, soils as a natural climate solution were beginning to like really gain steam. And I was like, I, I totally want to be part of this movement, but I, I need to go to grad school. Um, so I pursued grad school here at Oregon state, uh, with my advisor, Jeff Hatton. And that's where I started doing a kind of soil science in forests master's degree. And when I was finishing that, he happened to get this PhD program funded. So I, I stuck around and did that as well. Very interesting. Young Adrian had, had a little bit of insight digging those holes. I, I know <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's lucky that my dad didn't chastise me too much. Cause then I would have been against been scarred. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I definitely still remember my dad, like finding this hole. I'm like, what are you doing? It's like our backyard was like mostly dirt anyway. So I don't know why he was so upset, but. <laughs> okay. So this next question is going to be kind of twofold. First off, as one of our traditions, we do ask what is your favorite part about your research, but I also want to ask what was your just favorite part about grad school in general? So both just specific to research and then all, all about your experience here at Oregon State. My favorite part of research was really having the space to pursue my own interests and as a PhD or as a master's student, I was able to do this a bit. Um, that's kind of the nature of research, right? You're kind of given this question or this task and they say answer it in whatever way you can and you try your best to answer that question. Um, in my PhD though, uh, as PhD students know, it is much more open-ended and the kinds of questions you can ask are can become much more your own. 
And I did fully appreciate and take advantage of that fact that I was given um, runway to say, you know, this is your skill set. And within this skill set, you have these data and you can answer some really interesting questions. But what are the questions you're interested in? And I was interested in kind of large scale or large scale landscape regional type patterns. Um, so that's really what I focused on. So I, I really appreciated that. Um, flexibility and that independence that a PhD program allows you to do. Um, the other side of that is my favorite part about grad school, uh, because the research and grad school are very different beasts. Uh, <laughs> as as Jenna mentioned early early on, I was a longtime host of Inspiration Dissemination. I think my first interview was in 2015. Oh wow! Um, uh, at Elham Maskud. Or Masood, I still I still remember her. She she did, um, she was in textiles manufacturing, and I remember like, this was my my first interview, and I thought, what could be so interesting about textiles manufacturing? And she um, she's a Muslim woman, and the stuff she was interested in was there were no fabrics and textiles available at that time for anyone who wears a hijab to also do activities because it wasn't breathable but you needed that material to also stay in place while you're running around and like doing all the activities. And like she wanted to do more sports, but she also wanted to adhere to her religious principles and there was no product out there for her. And uh, my mind was blown. I was like, holy crap. I never thought textiles manufacturing could be so cool. Um, So that was my very first interview with Inspiration Dissemination. And everyone since then has been really fantastic. I said in my dissertation presentation, that is recorded. You can watch it online. Um, I learned more from my fellow graduate students doing this radio show about the world around me. I learned so much about the world around me. And I'm just like an inherently curious person that this radio show really helped foster that curiosity and kept me kind of like bouncing around all the fun topics that we do here as researchers at Oregon State. I learned more in this inspiration dissemination radio booth than I did in my dissertation. <laughs> also because I got a fantastic education at Cal Poly in soil science. So, you know, hat tip to them. Um, I do want to uh, point to three of my favorite episodes uh, during my time on ID. Uh, an early one from December 2012. Uh, Daniel Watkins was a previous host. He wrote the blog post titled uh, Medical Anthropology in Puerto Rico. This was with uh, Holly Horan. That episode was just it was integrative of both technical science and social science and political and ecological history that blew my mind uh, of like, whoa, you are wicked smart and you're integrating these very different disciplines into something incredibly meaningful. Um, I would, that's one of my favorite episodes. Um, I, I still, I still think back to that as to, you know, for all the, uh, public policy suggestions that scientists have, we also have to remember that people live in the real world. Um, and Holly's research kind of integrated those beautifully. Um, so uh, Holly Horan, Applied Medical Anthropology in Puerto Rico, December 2012. Um, one of my favorite interviews I conducted was in January 2022 with Hannah Whitley, uh, titled Water Woes of the West. This is also in the integration of kind of social and climate science, where um Uh, She looked at the Klamath River Basin and the water issues happening there where there is not enough water for not a lot of things happening. So there's a salmon issue, a tribal rights uh, issue. There's lots of farming that happens in the region. 
and there's a lake that has been drawn down and overdrawn very quickly. Um, so how do you uh, engage with stakeholders to help them understand the gravity of the situation and that if nobody budges on their position, then everybody will lose. And unless we can find compromises, then everybody's going to lose. And I thought Hannah Whitley just did an expert job in not only explaining the gravity of the situation, but also being able to hear people and understand where they're coming from and what their priorities are um, and how to move forward because uh, climate change isn't going away. Uh, so again, Hannah Whitley, Water Rose of the West, January 2022. And then Emily Richardson uh, from May 2022, her blog post is titled, Are Energy Systems in Transition? I met Emily at a party and she told me that she did uh, energy policy and energy systems. And uh, at this period of my life, I realized that I wanted to move away from soil science and much more towards energy policy. So when she told me she did energy policy, I was like, oh, my God, we got to have you on the radio. People need to know about this. Um, so you can hear my excitement in that interview with Emily. Um, and as, as she described, you know, we need a lot more people in the kind of clean energy space and uh, it's not really sexy thinking about, you know, poles and wires and electricity, but oh boy, we're going to need a lot more people in that space thinking about poles and wires and energy distribution systems. Um, so that's where I actually hope to take my career next because uh, where we put solar panels and windmills, we put them on land and deciding whether that land should be used for farmland, whether it should be used to kind of retain the natural integrity of that land, whatever it may be forest or grasslands. Um, those are tricky decisions, uh, but you need to put them physically somewhere. So where do you put them that don't impact wetlands, that don't impact the natural areas as much as we can, tribal rights and their sovereignty, um, but also in you know having conversations with people and trying to tell them these are the stakes. We can't just say no. We have to get you to yes. Where can we put these things? So that's where I hope to take uh, my research and is why I was just so excited to have Emily Richardson on because I was like, I, I think this is where I want to take my career. So you can hear my excitement in that interview. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a very intricate and difficult puzzle to put together. But having someone as excited as you on the task, I'm sure there'll be progress made. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so the next traditional question is, do you have any advice to give to anyone, anyone at all, whether it be a undergraduate student, a fellow graduate student, or just a friend at a party? What advice would that be? I am such a bad host. I actually <laughs> forgot we did the advice question. Oh, my goodness. Um, one, one advice that I, I remember someone else saying on a show, and I... It's going to, I, I wish I remembered who this was, but I, I can't remember. Um, it was a previous guest. They said, ask your professors more. This is especially for undergrads, but ask your professors and your TAs, especially more questions. Um, we as TAs, as graduate students, we know so much about the subject matter, but like, you know, we have to stay within our four corners of the things we're teaching. And if somebody would just ask us a question, we will go off. <laughs> and like, you can hear our excitement in the way we answer because like we got into science for a reason. Um, and also the class is much more beneficial to you as a student if you ask questions. Um, so I think that would be my advice generally because I started asking questions of, are these soil carbon offsets really the thing we should be doing? 
how long do you think soil carbon stays in the ground, my fellow researchers? How much do you know about farm economics, my fellow science researchers? Um, and the more I ask those questions, the more I realize that, like, oof, there are many logical holes that I'm not so sure uh, soils as a natural climate solution can occur at the scale that we think it can be occurring. Um, so I had very much of a uh, change of philosophy uh, because I kept asking questions. So I would urge undergrads especially, but graduate students always, to keep asking questions. <laughs> That's my favorite advice too. Never stop being curious. Yeah. <laughs> Never know where it will lead you. So then our final tradition is picking your outro song. So what song have you picked as your final outro from Inspiration Dissemination? So I picked um, Renegades of Funk by the Red, or I almost said the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm from California, so I thought I was going to choose a Red Hot Chili Pepper song. I decided against it. Um, <laughs> this is Renegades of Funk by Rage Against the Machine. And I had a conversation with somebody yesterday. I was at a graduation party, and it was a friend of a friend. And he's not in the climate space, um, but he essentially described how he was feeling a lot of climate doomerism. And when I happened to tell him, like, oh, yeah, I study permafrost soils and how they're melting, and uh, I read many IPCC reports, and, you know, it's not so great. He was like, wait, you actually read this stuff? And I was like, yeah, it's kind of for my job. And we got into this really long conversation about how he found it extremely difficult to kind of operate on a day-to-day because of all the bad things that he was reading about climate and climate change. And I totally feel that. Like, I read these reports, and it's not great. Um, but the thing that I kept trying to reiterate to him, and I, and I, and I, and I think I was able to convince him because we, we came away with a much different understanding uh, at the end of the conversation, which is the possibility for positive change in the last few years, especially because of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act um, last year, especially because of that policy, the possibilities for positive change in the uh, green energy transition is better than it has ever been. But it is much easier to read a climate doomerism story than it is to read about the many, many active benefits that are happening every day. And there's a kind of... um, uh, there's a phrase that uh, Robinson Mayer, a writer for The Atlantic, uh, he was previously for The Atlantic and now he does Heat Map Daily. Um, he called it uh, the green energy vortex, where once you have enough green energy things happening, it makes financial sense to do more green energy things. And in the last few years, um, it is financially advantageous and beneficial to um, get energy from solar panels and windmills than it is from natural gas and coal-fired power plants. And that a threshold was only passed in the last year or two. And now that that threshold is passed, it is only going to get more financially advantageous for these public utility companies to switch to green energy. Um, and so I was trying to convince this person that I was uh, talking to, like, things are bad. Yes, things are bad. But things are also getting really good. And his retort was, but what about the future? And my retort was, I teach students and holy crap, students nowadays are way more aware of the stakes and the consequences than I was when I was an undergrad. And I told him, like, if anything, I have so much hope and um, just like the promise of the students that I'm teaching today uh, just make me extremely hopeful. And many of the students that I teach are 
the kinds of students that will ask questions constantly. And they're the kind of students that I think will be the ones that will be questioning power structures, questioning authority, questioning the way things have always been because the song Renegades of Funk is very much about we need the average person to do more of this work because any person can do this work if you're willing to do it. Uh, so that's why I chose Renegades of Funk was because of this conversation I had yesterday of like things are bad, but they will get better. And this next generation is willing to lean into it because whether or not they know it, they can be renegades. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. It was so much fun getting to talk about all of your different research. Thank you so much for your dedication to inspiration dissemination over your degree and wishing you all the best in the future. Thanks, Jenna. It was really a pleasure to be on, and I wish inspiration dissemination all the best. I know y'all are going to do great. Awesome. So now, everyone, please enjoy Renegades of Funk. You try, you can't stop us now. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.